Welcome to another episode of the Bighorn Podcast with interesting people and their extraordinary stories. My name is Marty Lockman, and once again, we are fortunate to have the support of Leeds and Sunfine Jewelers, a member of our community for over 70 years, and AT&T, who reminds us it can wait. Please don't drive distracted. This is one of two special episodes for the summer that highlights a member of the Bighorn staff, and just like all of our Bighorn stories, has the same twists and turns that have led our guest to where they are today. These are just a few of the many people that contribute to our experience in a way that makes our community the phenomenal place that it is. Our guest today is Dale Abraham, Director of Golf Instruction at Bighorn. Dale has been honored numerous times, some of which are Golf Magazine's Top 100 Teachers in America, Golf Tips Magazine Top 25 Instructors, along with many other awards for being one of the top golf instructors in the country. We are certainly fortunate to have Dale's talents available to our membership. Dale has many twists and turns in his life both personally and professionally, that he is going to share with us. But first, let's start the story where it all began, in Avon Lake, Ohio, 20 minutes west of Cleveland. Dale, welcome, and take us on your journey. Thanks, Marty. So I grew up in Avon Lake, Ohio, uh, spent a lot of time there. That was, I've kind of really been in three places. So Avon Lake was the, the base until I was almost 15 years old or right before my 16th birthday. And my mom and dad were uh, divorced. So I spent most of the year with my mom and stepdad in Avon Lake. And then in the summers, I spent about a month or so in Chicago with my dad. And then at different breaks, like spring break and Christmas break, I'd spend some time with him. Um, growing up in small town was very different than being in something, place like the desert here, where it's much bigger than that is. And I know it's the desert still very small. Uh, but Avon Lake back then was maybe, I think, 10 or 12,000 people and kind of everybody knew everybody and it was just a good Midwest town. Um, it was fun. It was a great place to grow up. I mowed lawns in the summers. That was kind of my early job. And then the wintertime, I remember my buddy and I used to go and we'd charge people $2, a dollar a piece to shovel driveways. And the more it snowed, the better we, we liked it. And it was a great time. I look back at those fond memories and think about you know, how innocent it was to just go shovel driveways and how and mow grass and how great the neighbor were, they, how they treated us and, and how we helped them. And it was a lot of fun. Um, sporting wise, played a lot of sports. I played baseball. That was my really true love growing up. Uh, I played soccer. I wrestled. I messed around with tennis. I did uh, track, mostly sprints. The quicker it was over with, the better. I got a little bored with the cross country, but I ran cross country some in the falls. Um, played racquetball, you know, just about you name it. I think the only thing I wasn't able to play was football, and that was my mom wouldn't let me. And uh, I think she was the smartest one in the family at that point because uh, I just see with my history of injury in, in golf and what would could have possibly happened that I'm actually thankful I didn't play it. It was a really it was a good time. It was really neat when I got to visit my dad in the summertime. He was a big baseball fan as well as a golfer. Every year we'd go to a Cubs game, and that was kind of the highlight of the summer, going to Wrigley Field, seeing the ivy out on the wall, 
and getting to watch the Cubs. And that was when the Cubs had uh, Dave Kingman, the home run hitter, and Ryan Sandberg and Ron Say and some of the different players that they had, Rich Sutcliffe. Um, so they had a good team. Of course, they never quite made it out of the playoffs and always lost. The curse was always with them. But we had a lot of fun. And I remember my dad lived about two hours outside the city. And so I would take the train in and meet him there. He'd pick me up and we'd go to the Cubs game and then we'd drive home. And it was it was a special time being able to do that. And spending time there was really kind of what got me and helped me stay in sports. And it was really fun was uh, my dad, just about 20 minutes from where we lived, there was a little family fun center. And in this family fun center, they had batting cages on one side and a driving range on the other. So my dad was a good golfer growing up um, and I had really no interest in golf whatsoever. Uh, but he was probably a three or four handicap, something like that. And he would drop me off in front of the batting cages. And I think it was, you get 10 pitches for 10 cents. So he'd give me a dollar or two and I'd be there for an hour. And he'd go hit balls and I'd, I'd hit balls. Um, mine were moving, his weren't. And uh, that was just the biggest difference. And we both had a great time. And then he'd come over when we were done. And as soon as we'd finish up, we'd take off and go back and, you know, do whatever we did back then. But that was kind of my early childhood years in, in Chicago and Avon Lake and spending time in between both both areas. It almost sounds idyllic. I mean, it's, it is happy days and all those sorts of things where you just have all these options as a child. It's a great community. And we talk quite often in these about when we were young, there is that sense of community. Everybody looked after each other. Everybody played sports. You played in as many sports as you possibly could. And you were obviously a good athlete and you were able to excel in a bunch of different sports. But you're playing baseball and team sports for the most part. What was your thought even about golf then and your dad going over to hit balls? Because at that time, you're thinking, well, geez, what's the fun of that? I'm going to be a baseball player. I'm going to play for the Cubs. What was your thought about golf? What point did that click in? Golf wasn't even on the radar at that point. You know, back then, this is well before Tiger Woods, golf was, wasn't cool. It wasn't something you did in high school. It wasn't anything you did back then. It was for the geeky kids and... Um, I know that's not politically correct, but that's, you know, how it was back then. It really wasn't until kind of my latter years, my junior in high school, that I actually started playing golf. By today's standard, it was a really late start. I was on all the all-star baseball teams, the traveling teams, all that. I was actually a really good pitcher and shortstop, and I could hit. Kind of rare for a pitcher. Yeah, it was, wasn't on the radar until about my, I think between my sophomore and junior year in high school, um, I had moved to California with my dad to Northern California. We're in a place called Walnut Creek um, in the East Bay of San Francisco. And he had joined a, a small golf club. And I say small, I think it was 6,000 yards from the, the tips. And um, OB on both sides was 16 to the 18 holes. And then the other two holes had OB on one side and water on the other. And to top it off, he used to blow about 25 there every afternoon. It wasn't anything that I really was into. I, I just... Golf was kind of not that exciting to me. Baseball was where all the excitement was. And then that between the, my uh, sophomore and junior year, I started messing around with golf that summer. I got pretty good pretty quickly, but I worked at it hard. I, I would go to the driving range every morning. It was about a 25-minute drive from my house, so I'd get up really early. I'd be at the golf course about 5.30 in the morning, 
and I'd go play 18 holes by myself before the maintenance crew got out or even before the shop opened. And I would walk and I'd take a dozen balls with me. And if I hit a shot I didn't like, I would hit, I might empty my whole bag on the one spot right there. Um, so I, I learned to practice a lot on the, on the golf course. After I got done playing, I'd hit balls. There was a golf course um, that was another about 15 minutes from our house. And I used to go there and use the putting green. And one day I was on the putting green and I was just practicing putting or chipping, something like that. And um, an older gentleman came up to me and said, hey, I see you here a lot. I see you're really working on your game. How'd you like to work for us? And I said, okay, well, let me think about that. And sure, you know, what would it entail? What would it do? And they said, well, we need help picking the range. So I started picking the range for him. And I, before that, I had, I had been actually, I'd done a few other jobs. I'd been on a, a gardening crew in the you know summers and weekends. I had worked in a restaurant as a uh, dishwasher in the weekends. Uh, knew I didn't like that and want to do that very long. Uh, that was some hot and sweaty times. And just some other odd and ends to make money and, and still be while you're in school and playing sports. I started working on the range and in the late evenings or especially on the weekends, Friday, Saturday night, I'd pick balls for them. Um, driving a little tractor around, picking all the balls, cleaning them. And for that, they gave me free access to the driving range. And I think I got the better end of the deal there because I used to hit one of those big baskets of balls, the giant ones, um, just about every day. You know, I kind of grooved in a swing and, and started playing my junior year in high school. Was, that was the first year I really played any competitive golf. I'd been, I think in the fall, I wound up playing, I was playing water polo in the fall. Usually in the winter, the whole rest of the year was baseball. The winter, I started playing golf and by that uh, spring, I was the number one or two guy in the golf team. So that kind of started my golf career. Would it be safe to say that when you want to do something, you do it 110%? There is no in-between, as you did in baseball, I'm sure. But now golf comes along, and you, you're you not afraid to do the work that it's going to take to be better. That's right. I worked hard at it. Um, I know the whole 10,000-hour rule and I think I tried to put the full 10,000 in the first year. In fact, my dad, I think it was after about a month after I started playing, and I really hadn't played at all. Um, I'd watch my dad and just, he's like, you want to come hit some balls? And it was like, no, I'll go to the batting cages. Um, so that summer, I, after about a month, I told my dad, you know, I, hey, I broke 40. And my dad's looking at me kind of like, there's no way. You know, you can't break 40 just picking it up playing with these blade clubs. I had the old Tom Watson Ram blades that were about as small as you could possibly see, you know, wooden driver and stuff. And, and, and he's thinking there's no way. So sure enough, we went out and played. I think I shot 39 when I told him I broke 40. And then he and I played, and I don't remember exactly what I shot, but it was either 36 or 37. And I know I beat him by one or two, and he wasn't a happy camper at that point. He kind of was looking at me like, there's no way, I can't believe it. How'd you do this? You know, that kind of started, and we were both very competitive, so we had some, some battles on the golf course. It was always very pleasant, but neither one of us wanted to lose to the other one. That actually kind of stoked the fire even a little more. It was just a great time to be with him. We kind of developed a tradition. Every Christmas morning, we'd go out and play nine holes together. And it was just a lot of fun. It was a good time. You know, every kid wants to spend time with his dad. And that was just a great time for me to spend with my dad, good quality time, playing golf and enjoying it, enjoying each other's company. And get recognition. 
And uh, also, this comes to you, as you said, very quickly. It's easy to like something when you're starting to get good at it. Now, had, you're still playing baseball, you're still doing other sports, or is now has golf overtaken everything? Uh, at that point, I was still playing water polo, and I played water polo all through high school. Um, so I played that um, and t- through high school, and then the only other, really at that point, the only other sport was golf. And I kind of look back at it with my TPI, which is Tyler's Performance Institute training. I kind of look back and say, all right, well, what they've discovered is at the age of about 14 or 15, that's when you should start to specialize in one or two sports. And I happened to by chance do that. And I think that helped me out a lot. I think water polo was great because it got me in really good shape. And every time I'd come off water polo season, I'd hit it about 10 yards further with golf. And that was great. But golf and baseball didn't really mix for me. When I played golf after playing baseball, I just would hit it terribly, you know, and golf didn't do anything for my baseball. So I kind of felt like I had to pick one or the other. Golf was a challenge. It was one of those things that you never master. You continually can get better at it, but you never master it. Even when you look at the best players in the world, one day they win and the next week they miss a cut. So it's something that it's kind of like Pavlovian conditioning. You try your best, and some days are great, and some days aren't. And the ones that aren't, you just try the next day. And accept that. Many of us have a tough time, and I'm sure we'll get into this as we talk about instruction. But expectations can get in the way or hinder, I believe, success. But also we have to be realistic because you can't shoot 62 every day, and it's going to happen. I think what you just said is so important is your expectations – really set you up for what you're going to do. So um, it's it's funny, but when people play, when they're getting ready to go play golf and they don't hit the ball well on the range, a lot of times their expectations get really low. So it t- helps tamper the expectations, and then they go out and play golf, and they play better because those expectations haven't increased. How did you handle that when you were young? Because many of us who have played sports of any kind, but specifically golf, you have to manage not only the expectations, but your emotions. At a young age, is that just part of your DNA, or did you work on that? Were you aware of that at a young age? I was not really aware. I was kind of oblivious about everything other than, you know, being a good athlete, it's a blessing and a curse, right? Things come easily to you at some times, and then when they don't, it's you kind of wonder, okay, what's going on here? Why is this happening? And just through learning, I have a very inquisitive nature. I want to know why things work or why they don't. I want to learn. I want to continually learn. I mean, that's one of those things that every year, every month, every week, I want to learn something new and figure out why things are the way they are. And I actually didn't have a lot of experience in high school playing golf. I just played on the golf team, which was a couple months out of the year each year. I didn't play any summer tournaments at that point. I was fortunate enough to be good enough and it wasn't just luck it was a lot of hard work but I was good enough to make to the state championships each year that I played which was just two years and that got me on the radar of a lot of the college teams I kind of had a choice between I really whittled it down to about three schools it was kind of UCLA UC Santa Barbara and UC San Diego and after visiting them and it was funny I visited them while I had a broken hand so I had broken two bones in my left hand had a cast on and going in for these trips to recruiting trips and you walk into the coach's office with a broken hand they kind of look at you and just shake their head just kind of like you did and 
but it, it worked out all right. I picked UCSD. Um, I loved La Jolla, loved the area. They had their own driving range on campus. Um, Torrey Pines South was our home course. It was hard to beat that and the weather and everything that was down there. It was really, especially coming from Ohio, going to Southern California would be was pretty nice. It wasn't hard to adjust to. And if I remember correctly, UCLA was another option of yours. They didn't have a driving range even with their facility. They used to use Bel Air, if I'm not. Right, they didn't. And the coach had just left and they brought in a new coach and I didn't really know a whole lot about him. And, and LA was back then was a little intimidating to me, especially being from a small town. I just had a better feeling about San Diego and, and going there and being in La Jolla and both great schools. I don't think you can go wrong with either one. So now you're uh, down in San Diego at La Jolla. How does that go? Uh, it went really well. So uh, my first year, I actually redshirted. I made the team. I was the number two person, but I actually redshirted because I knew the way I was an economics major. That was their closest thing to business. And it was impacted at the time. So you had to take a bunch of classes in your freshman year just to qualify to be able to to go into economics. And I knew if for some reason I didn't qualify, I wasn't gonna wanna stay around and have a different major. Um, I wanted as close to business as I could. And so that first year I redshirted, I just worked on my game. I played with the team, but I just didn't travel and play in any of the tournaments, the the NCAA tournaments. So I kept that year of eligibility. Um, I wound up qualifying for the economics major. I got a high enough GPA in the courses that I needed to take. So my sophomore year, I basically played number two, I think. And then the rest of the other three years, I was the number one guy. I played pretty well. I, you know, I I know my strengths and weaknesses. I was a three-time All-American. I won several tournaments. I came in, I think my junior year, I came in second at the NCAAs. And my senior year, I led after three rounds had a little bit of a bad experience on the ninth and 10th holes of my final round where um, looking for balls, we got behind and then we got warned that we were on the clock because we were behind looking for balls. And on the 10th tee, it was really elevated tee. It was a windy day. I had a straw hat on and uh, it was flopping around in my head while I was getting ready to swing. And all I could think about it was it blowing off my head while I was swinging. And needless to say, I didn't make a good swing. I hit a ball out of bounds, actually. Went over, stuck my hat on my bag, and teed up another one, hit it right down the pipe, and wound up making par for double. And wound up coming in fourth place by two shots. So that kind of stung a little bit there. But I learned from that. And I, I, to this day, have never worn a straw hat. (laughs) Um, Don't like the big floppy hats for that reason. You know, just pretty much wore a baseball hat for the rest of the time. But, you know, you live and learn and everybody makes mistakes and it's only really a mistake if you don't learn from it. And, you know, getting myself in those situations that I did and learning to see, hey, this is what's going to happen when you have adrenaline, when you're nervous, when you're pumped up and amped up. The more you put yourself in those situations, the better you become at dealing with them. So you either learn how to deal with them or you wind up not succeeding. And so um, I think you just learn it all right, here's how I deal with this. Here's how I deal with that. And golf in college was great. You know, I enjoyed my time there. I worked really hard um, on my game and on my grades, got a good GPA and also was a very productive, I think, member of the team. 
So now, just missing out on winning NCAA championships, had some disappointments, but a lot more success than disappointments. You graduate, now where you go next? So right after I graduated, I turned pro because I was going to go play on the then Nike tour. And I was playing in a tournament to warm up, uh, get things ready before that. And I was uh, sec- uh, the first day of a two-day tournament, was in the middle of the fairway on the 12th hole, had 172 yards to the middle pin. And even though I was in the middle of the fairway, there was a, I was in a divot, and the divot was going across the fairway. It was actually 90 degrees to the direction of play. So it was probably somebody made a practice wing, made a big, big divot, and my ball had rolled into that. It was a cold day. I think it was like in the mid-50s, Southern California, that's a cold day. It was May, and I went to hit the ball out of there, and I had to go kind of down into it, and it was like hitting a tree root. My hands were going forward. The club had hit the front part of the, the divot after I hit the ball, and the club had shot backwards while I was still going forward. And I actually snapped the head of my radial bone in my right wrist and tore a ligament. I knew I'd done something. I didn't think it was anything like that. And I finished that round. So another six holes and then played the next day, taking a bunch of Tylenol um, with a broken wrist. Unbeknownst to me um, that it was broken. It was painful, but you you just think, oh, I just sprained my wrist. I'll get through it. I was playing pretty well up into that point. Game was in good shape for me for how I was playing back then. The next week I was supposed to go to travel to go out and play on tour and I went to the doctor to get a cortisone shot. I'd had some knee issues and um, had had an operation, I think my freshman or sophomore year in college on my knee. And so I went to the same guy to just get a cortisone shot thinking it was just some kind of injury and he wouldn't do it until I had a scan and MRI and those came back positive and showed that I'd done what I did to it and broken it. I expect this to be a story when you're on the football team. I don't expect this to be the story when you're you're playing golf. Um, This is traumatic. I mean, this is an injury that is threatens your future in golf. Yes, it was a tough injury. It took probably a good four months for it to heal. Um, Rehabilitation injury, just doing all the exercises you do with rehab. Uh, It was not fun, um, but. You know, it's something you think back then when you're in your early 20s, it's just a temporary thing and you feel invincible and you'll get right back to it. And other golfers have had injuries and wrist injuries and have hit tree roots or something like that. And, you know, I just thought it would be temporary. It was one of those things that I had at the end of my college. I just gotten hooked up with the Ledbetter Academy. Back then it was in La Quinta at PJ West. So I was working with the guys in my swing. I was caddying at the quarry at that time. You know, I came back in with my wrist and they said, well, you know, you can't really caddy very well. Why don't you come help us? And so I said, you know, it's four, it's just going to be a month or six weeks, eight weeks, something like that was what I thought it would be. And so I started helping them with, with their academy. I would uh, assist them with lessons. I'd help them set up, um, tear down uh, some of the schools that helps them with schools, with teaching here or there, they'd tell me what they wanted me to do with somebody, and I'd go do that with them while, while one of the instructors would help somebody else. And, you know, I just kind of got into, you know, helping them out with that. And that was supposed to be a little temporary thing. And it was, it was, it was four months, which was longer than I thought, or about twice as long as I thought. But after that, I started trying to play again, and then I got tendonitis in that wrist. And the tendonitis was really bad. It was one that took me out for a full year. It was literally a year when I started back to when I could pick up a club again. 
And it was bad enough that if I picked up just a little water bottle, my wrist would balloon and swell up so much that I wouldn't be able to move it for two or three weeks. The tendonitis was the one that ended my playing career. What brought you to the desert, to the Ledbetter School? Just rehab and you were coming out here to play? or No, I had a connection. Um, so my dad had had a membership at PJ West um, when I was in college. So I used to come over on the weekends uh, and just drive over for like on a Friday night and stay Saturday, Sunday, drive back Sunday night. And I would play golf. And so the Ledbetter Academy happened to be at PJ West. And I really didn't know that much about it or anything until I just decided my senior year, I'm like, I need some help. I needed some better direction than I'd gotten on my swing. I think I was with like, just like a lot of people, I'd really searched for somebody who could help me with my swing. And I hadn't found that up until that point. Uh, And I'd been through a number of different professionals at different courses and different ranges. And I just really struggled with it. And then I found um, one of the guys there that really seemed to help me and I started playing better. You know, it was just a short time after that. It was only a couple months that I'd seen him before, you know, that when I broke my wrist. So so you have this string of some, no pun intended, some really bad breaks. How old are you now? I was in my early 20s. So you're in your early 20s. Your dream is to play on the tour. You've had these debilitating injuries. You're still a young man. And there's some decisions to be made. How does that all go? I mean, in your head, I mean, this has to be a low point for you, I'm sure. It was as far as golf. It definitely was. Uh, It was one of those things that, again, I thought the tendonitis would be temporary. Uh, Most of the doctors I saw, hand specialist after hand specialist, they're, oh, it's just going to be temporary. You know, give it a couple months. It'll be fine. And, And it was one of those times where I'd always worked hard and I'd always been working. And so I started helping them more at the Ledbetter Academy. I just started helping more and more and more, and they were asking me to help more. And pretty soon I was working six and seven days a week as I really didn't have anything else to do at that point. Um, So I was working pretty hard and I was learning a lot actually. And I enjoyed the learning part. I I really enjoyed just hearing different instructors. They had four instructors there and, and I liked, each one of them I felt was really good at one specific thing and or one working with one group of people like one guy was really good with women another one was good with executives another one was good with low handicaps and so i kind of tried to say all right what can i learn from him what can i learn from him what can i learn from him um one of the ladies who was in in charge of the um the training for Ledbetter, better what can i learn from her what could i learn from david and so when we got to see david about five times a year uh, a lot of corporate events and things so spending time around those quality instructors was great. It was one of those things where it was like an encyclopedia of golf. Like, how could you fix this? What could, and they didn't all do it the same way. They all kind of got the same message across, but they had a little different delivery. That's where I kind of got into golf. And I really I wasn't planning on becoming an instructor. I thought this was a temporary thing. And then one day the director of the West, West Coast for Ledbetter came to me and said, hey, listen, we want you to join the staff. We're going to put you in the training program. It'll take nine months, but you'll be certified as a Ledbetter certified instructor. You'll start teaching full time for us. You know, here's what you can do. Here's what we can do for you. And, and he goes, I think you'd be great at it. And I, at this point, I, why not? Right. I mean, the worst thing in the world that would happen is I'd really learn from good quality people. 
I got healthy again and my wrist started working again and I was able to go back and play, I'd be armed with more knowledge. And maybe I could help myself and not have to rely on somebody else. And I had struggled to find somebody I could rely on to help me. So I thought, wow, what a great opportunity. Touch on this as it relates to your teaching, to have somebody that you have confidence in, somebody you believe in, somebody that you can trust that's going to help you get better at whatever level you're at. Yes, if you don't buy into it, what somebody's telling you, you're not gonna do it and it's not gonna help you. And it's so, I think Tiger Woods, if you read the Hank Haney book, Tiger Woods talked about that, or Haney talked about it with Tigers. You know, he would take some of the stuff and say, yeah, that'll work, I'll buy into it, and some of the stuff he wouldn't. But you do have to, you have to find somebody you trust. You gotta commit 100% to doing it, and once you get that one thing, then you can move on to something else. But too many people try too many things at once, and you just, one thing at a time, it's like building a house, you gotta put the foundation up first. Then you put up the walls, and then you put up the, the roof and the siding and all that. So it, it takes time and there are steps to it. But, you know, I trusted these guys. They, they were great instructors. They were some of the top in the game at the time. And uh, learning from them was fantastic. Had you resigned yourself at all to the fact that maybe playing professional golf as a player was still a chance? Or where were you psychologically on this? That was one that kind of slowly faded. So not originally, I think even when, so, you know, kind of fast forward almost a year to when I started to heal. It's a really funny story, actually. We had just gotten done. Um, so the Ledbetter Academy started at PJ West, but when all the savings and loan scandals hit um, and Landmark was forced to sell their holdings, uh, they sold to a company that owned another golf academy. So we wound up our lease when it came up, they wouldn't renew. So we went to Desert Willow. And we had just, we were at Desert Willow, we just finished a corporate outing. Um, and I was walking out to the, in the parking lot right behind David, there was like five or six of us, we were going to dinner. And we're about three quarters of the way to the, the van that we had. And some guy just popped up between the cars and said, hey David, can I have five minutes of your time? And David being a great guy that he is said, sure, what do you have? I'm sure he'd been approached by a million different people. And uh, this guy starts talking about these Nikant magnets. And I'm kind of looking at him like, you know, this is kind of like voodoo, I don't get it, but he's showing us all these different things and he tells us how it can help golfers with this and your balance and all this other stuff. We're all kind of looking at him and he's got some cool tricks that he's showing us and it's kind of, it's really piquing my interest, but I'm thinking, you know, what in the world magnets, how are magnets gonna help? But at this point, you know, I had exhausted all my medical um, options except surgery. And the surgery they wanted to do on my wrist to get rid of the tendonitis was, wasn't one that I wanted to do. It was my right wrist, I'm right-handed. It didn't seem like a good idea. Um, and at the time I didn't want to do it. So I kind of was like, all right, I'm gonna spend $300 back then and buy all these magnets and see what happens. And craziest thing, within a week I was hitting balls. It had been literally a year and this is where I know probably, I don't know if you're gonna remember this, but Floorsheim Shoes came out with the Magsheims where they had magnets in the shoes. Um, their shoes came out of this meeting in the parking lot at Desert Willow on our way to dinner. And so, you know, I was hitting balls within a week. I was feeling pretty good. Uh, and then I would, I wound up taking some lessons from the guys at the academy there. And they all told me the same thing. They said, oh, you gotta hinge your wrist sooner on your backswing. You're hinging it too late. 
and I would swing about five times, hinging my wrists as much as, as soon as I felt like I could, which was probably about halfway in my backswing. And my wrist would blow up like somebody, like a balloon, and I'd be out for another two weeks. And I'd get out all the magnets and do all my thing, and I'd be back at it two weeks later. I'd go talk to one of the other guys, he'd tell me the same thing. It didn't take but maybe two or three of these sessions before I figured out, all right, this isn't gonna work. And everybody's telling me the same thing. There's, there has to be another way to swing a golf club. Other people have had, had wrist injuries, much even more serious than mine. And there's just gotta be another way. And that's what kind of set me off on looking at alternatives, which to me was biomechanics. And I know at that point in the kind of mid nineties, mid, uh, you know, biomechanics was really something you weren't, it was just barely on a blip on the horizon and on the radar. And Greg Norman was the only guy that worked out on tour and it was supposed to be really bad for you to work out and play golf. Um, but I kind of went off on my own and said, all right, I gotta do this biomechanics thing. And at this point I had already been certified by Ledbetter to teach, I was teaching full time. And I was also in charge of the senior sessions. So we'd get these senior sessions, people would come in and, and I'd have five or six, seven, eight seniors in a clinic. and. I'd go to him and I'd say, hey, Marty, tell me about you know, your game and, and do you have any physical limitations? And they'd look at me and they'd say, well, let me tell you what works because it's a shorter list. And so um, there were so many people that had so many physical limitations that they couldn't swing the way you, know, you would teach someone in theory if a person could work, could move their body perfectly. We used to have these sessions where we'd get in the room and we'd all, we'd give a case and I'd put up one of these seniors and say, okay, this is so-and-so, and here's their swing. And they'd say, oh, do this, this, and this. And I would say, well, they can't do that because of their hip, and they can't do this because of their knee, and they can't do that because of their shoulder, and they can't be do this. And then everybody would look at me like, well, they can't play golf. And that wasn't really a satisfactory answer to me because I feel like you can play golf. If you can walk and stand up and make any kind of swing, um, you can play golf. And so I kind of got really heavily into biomechanics and a lady named Jan, well, Paul Check and Janet Alexander. And Janet was Paul's top person. And when I got certified early 2000 or so, Janet was the instructor for the course. And there was probably 30 people in there. And I think I was the only golf pro probably in the class. Most of the people were physical therapists. There were some trainers and there was like one or two doctors. Um, so the first day I took the class that night, I ran to the local Barnes and Noble and bought three anatomy books. I had no idea what they were talking about, about insertion points of muscles and ligaments and all this stuff. I was, it was completely over my head. So I bought a bunch of anatomy books, started studying in anatomy and I spent, you know, I think it was a supposedly eight hours for, I think seven straight days. And I was there from first thing in the morning, as soon as Paul would get there in the morning or Janet to late at night, as soon as they'd kick me out, just asking questions and trying to learn as much as I could. But I learned a lot about biomechanics, especially with Janet going down there to visit her. I'd take my laptop with me and I'd pay her for two or three hours and I would just play swings for her. And she'd look at the swings, not as a golf pro, but as a physical expert and say, I would say, I'm trying to get this person to do this, but maybe it's trying to turn their hips and their their hips are swaying instead. And she'd tell me, okay, well, go give them this check or assessment, that one and that one, and see what their hips do. 
And so I learned kind of how to quickly assess somebody, see what they could do physically, and then build a swing around that. So you're not trying to swing like a tour pro unless you can move like a tour pro. And if you're, you know, 70 years old, you're probably not going to swing like a 20 year old. Um, and so, but you can still swing the best swing that you can have. And that's what kind of got me into it. And I started, you know, down that route with the senior clinics and then also with myself. I wanted to figure out a way I could swing a golf club. And I did. I wound up taking my own medicine. I hit balls, foam balls twice a week into a net for four weeks, which was 15 minutes a week probably. And that's how I changed my swing. I didn't want to see ball flight. It felt so terrible to me. I didn't think I'd ever be able to hit the ball that way, but I'd look on the video. And back then we didn't have the track, man, all the cool technology we had now. We just had video. And I looked at the video and go, man, that swing looks actually good. Even though it feels really bad, I felt like I was gonna hit a hundred yard slice with every club. The first time I put a ball down, I was in the back end of Desert Willow and we'd closed on a Sunday. I was the only one around and I put a ball down. I was supposed to hit it in the net and I turned sideways and hit it out onto the range. And I never saw it go. I was looking about a hundred yards to the right and never saw it. So I go back to the video and I look and I went, well, it looked pretty good. You know, started off straight. I don't know where it went, but, and I was hitting between these two trees that I probably shouldn't have at that point, but I put another ball down, I hit it and I'm looking a hundred yards to the right. And sure enough, the ball starts off five yards to the right and draws. And I couldn't for the life of me get that feel to match with the ball flight that I saw. And it took me probably a month of, like I felt like I was gonna slice everything. So I'd tee up the ball on the very right side of the tee markers, aim at the left rough and hit it in the left rough. And it took me a little bit of doing that before I went from the left rough to the edge of the rough, to the fairway, to the middle of the fairway. And you know, I wound up working within my limitation, which was my, my new limitation, which was my wrist at the point. And I wound up developing a swing that was, to me, better than the swing I had before because I had learned so much from the guys um, and the biomechanics. And before, I was a really good iron player. I mean, you get an iron in my hand, and I was lethal. And I hit it long off the tee, but I was really crooked. So the days that my driver worked was great. The days that it didn't work was really, really bad. But I started now hitting fairways. Uh, which was the first time in my life where I could get up on a tee and just, you know, knew I was going to hit it in a fairway and I'd hit 12 or 13 out of 14 fairways in a round. And that was shocking because normally I'd hit three or four and a good day was seven or eight. Uh, I did lose a, a lot of club head speed from the wrist injury. So I'd swing hard, but it wouldn't go as far. And that part was a little disappointing and there's no substitute for distance. It was great because I learned and I I figured out a new swing for me, and I figured out how things worked. Now, as this going on, and, and your professional life and your golf life is improving, tell me about your personal life. So when we went to Desert Willow, I happened to meet Vanessa. And Vanessa was working for Desert Willow. She was still in school. She was kind of finishing up, but she was putting herself through school. And she was working um, as the merchandiser or buyer there. And uh, we happened to meet and hit it off pretty well. And I think that was 99, December of 99, that we really kind of met and started kind of dating. Yeah, that's when I met Vanessa. And that's where, at that point, it had been, you know, a good three or four years already, probably four years since um, I had played any. I messed around in Chicago. I worked for Ledbetter in the summer in Chicago. 
in the wintertime out here in the desert. And I really didn't have a whole lot of time to play golf and to practice. I was working six days a week, sun up to sundown teaching. And so, you know, that's why I say it kind of slowly faded. Just when you, when you don't play that long, it just kind of fades away. And that's what kind of happened to me. And so um, until uh, a few years after that, then I started playing again a little bit. But that's where I met Vanessa. I met Vanessa at Desert Willow, and she was also working part-time at the gym that I was going to. Um, and I was spending a lot of time in the gym. I'd go um, six to seven days a week, and I'd spend two or three hours in there at night after work. My buddy was the manager there, and it didn't hurt that she was there. No, I would think that you probably showed up a little more because of that. Yeah, as a single guy, and you got a beautiful girl that you're interested in, of course. And absolutely, and by the way, we're really fortunate today, and I'm honored. We've got Vanessa in here with us today, and she's going to be part of these conversations as we move along. But again, we don't know exactly where this relationship is going, but it's pretty good. Have you decided that the desert's going to be your home now, or how do you feel about the direction that that's taking? Right. So uh, right about the time that I met Vanessa was about the time that uh, David sold his academies. So IMG originally owned them, and uh, they were great because they would pay for our expenses to go work with the tour pros. So we didn't have to charge the tour pros our expenses. We were able to go to a lot of different tournaments. It was it was a great relationship, and they were looking just to sign, prof- you know, golf professionals to their deals. Um, so it was great. But when he sold them, that he sold them to a competitor of the company that was managing Desert Willow, and they didn't want to renew the contract. Uh, my boss at the time of the this, that single academy hired me to start Desert Willows Academy with them. And so I did that first uh, fall. So they sold it in kind of, I think, April. I think then that, that summer I traveled back and forth to Chicago on my own. So I'd go to Kemper Lakes and um, Long Grove and I was teaching my own. I'd go for like 10 days and I would teach from seven in the morning till eight or nine o'clock at night for 10 straight days. And then I'd come back and I'd have two, three weeks off, then I'd go do it again. And um, that was right before my contractor situation with um, Desert Willow, starting their academy had started. And I was dating Vanessa at the time and I probably was probably great. She'd get rid of me for 10 days and then she could see me for two weeks. She couldn't get too tired of me. And I'd be back and forth. My boss, who was the West Coast director of the Ledbetter Academies, called me and said, hey, I want you in the summers to come to Colorado and help out with teaching at the Roaring Four Club, which is just outside Aspen. And I checked it out and it's just an amazing place. And he said, oh, by the way, we have a position for Vanessa as well. We need a buyer in the summers. And so I think it worked out great for both of us. And we went up there and we spent five summers there um, working at the Roaring Four Club, kind of going back and forth between the desert here and, and there. Um, you know, the, the Desert Willow Academy lasted a year before uh, my boss there and I wound up taking off and the West Coast director that, was, that had hired me for the Roaring Four Club also hired me to um, teach at Landmark Golf Club. So we were doing that and just going back and forth. And that went on till about 2006. And we were, to go backwards a little bit, we got married in 2002, November of 2002 at Desert Willow on one of the holes there in the Mountain View course. And, um, but we, the two of us went back and forth for many, many years. And then in 06, uh, 
the PGA of Southern California Golf Club contacted me, the officials of the, for the, the Southern California PGA. And they said, we've got your name from a bunch of different people and we want to talk to you about being our director of instruction. And we have the golf club in Beaumont at the time and it was an up and coming area and they were sinking a lot of money into it and you know, 36 hole resort. And it was about the time that we were trying to start a family and you know, settling down in one location was going to be nice. And we've been going back and forth enough, staying in enough apartments and employee housing and, um, and basalt in Colorado that we kind of, that appealed to us. And they, they made us a great deal. And we wound up going in February of 06 to, to, um, Beaumont and starting kind of everything there. I was still commuting and teaching at one of the local clubs down here one day a week. So I'd work five days a week in Beaumont, and then I'd commute down here on Mondays um, and teach in the desert on Mondays. Um, but that's kind of how Vanessa and I met. We met at the golf club, and so golf, I guess, was good for both of us. So now we're starting up this new venture. Exciting. You're both together. It's a more traditional setting for both of you. Now what goes on? I took the job in February of 06, and then... By December of 06, they sold the golf course. And we had a owner come in that had a really different view of things. I lasted the longest. I was the only one that didn't kind of leave immediately and I kind of hung on, I would say. I mean, I've stayed there about three years. I actually kind of thought it would be a temporary thing because I didn't think his vision would last. And it didn't, it wound up, he wound up selling to um, the Cabazon Indian tribe. And, uh, but it lasted a little longer than I wanted than what we thought. And um, at that same time, in about 09, the position at Desert Mountain opened up in Scottsdale. And Desert Mountain's a great place, five, well, now seven. Um, but it opened up and, you know, amazing place. And I was one of 178 applicants. Uh, I did five different interviews, four in person. In fact, one of them I took Vanessa, we drove in. Um, and as I was driving out, I was probably an hour outside Phoenix. I got a phone call and said, it was like a, I don't know, Monday. Can you be back on Wednesday? And I kind of almost thought about just turning around and staying an extra day, but we drove back and then Wednesday I was back out there, but it wound up being an exhaustive process of interviewing, but they offered me the job and I took it and, uh, I moved that fall of 09 to desert mountain and spent almost six years there and, you know, a great place. We built a 6,500 square foot performance center um, with six different bays in it, indoor putting studio, uh, retail area. It was a pretty neat place. And it was pretty neat to be part of that, seeing that go up and helping design it and getting everything in shape. And the members there were absolutely fantastic. Um, and it was, a, it was a great time. And I think we both liked it. And Vanessa had gone back to grad school, wanted to change her careers and become a speech pathologist. And it just so happens that about the same time the job opened, uh, she got accepted into NAU for the grad, grad student program. And so, you know, it kind of, they both wound up being perfect timing again. And we moved there and spent six years there. Things seem to be working out for both of you. I mean, it's a partnership and you're both doing your own thing, but you're both together. Everything seems to be right on track. Yeah, that was really exciting. It was a lot of fun. Getting able, being able to design what goes into it, the technology, um, just seeing it grow. It was really a cool time. And um, Vanessa's always been super supportive of me and my career and 
Um, she's moved for us, and that move was probably great for both of us because it got her helps get her into NAU, um, and it was a good time for us. Um, yeah, just wound up being really good. And about two years into it, I think I think it was two or three years into it, maybe more. She actually got the phone call first from one of our old members at the Roaring Four Club that was also a member in Telluride, Colorado, and said, "Hey, we put Dale's name in for a position here. They're looking for a new director of golf." They contacted me and I kind of told them I was more on the instruction side. And they said, well, we want to have you come up as the director of instruction then and we want to see how you do and what you think of the place. And we drove up uh, in March in the snow. So it was, there was probably 10 or 12 feet of snow on the ground and we kind of tried to look at it as best we could, but it was a fun time. And I look back at it and it was a great time. We had a great time just exploring it and wound up taking that job. and. You know, it's, it's another, it was a desert mountains, obviously in the desert in Phoenix in the summer, so it was slow. So it allowed me to go be busy again in the, in the summertime. It went from being kind of come up mid-June and leave first of September to come up first of June. And then it was like come up 15th of May. Then they wanted it was like first of May and it was stay longer and longer. And after the, about halfway through the mid-year, the first year, they said, okay, and I didn't know that this was the plan ahead of time, but I think the plan ahead of time was they were um, letting the uh, head pro at the time go. And they'd already told him that they were gonna let him go. And they said, they came to me and said, hey, we want you to take over. And we wanna put you in charge. You're gonna have a dual role. You're gonna be the director of golf and the director of instruction. And I kind of looked at him and thought, okay, you guys are nuts. That's two 60 hour a week jobs. Um, I don't know how anyone in the world would do both, but I'll try. And I did both for five years, five different summers until uh, till last summer. And it was crazy. It was, we did a renovation to the range there, several million dollar renovation and trying to teach four or five lessons a day and run all the tournaments and club and um, oversee the merchandising and the tea times and everything else. It's, it was a big job. And so um, we did that all the way till uh, last summer. And, and again, and Vanessa, I want to get you in here for a second. It has to be a partnership. When you're in, a, in the business like Dale's in, there's some movement. There's some changes. Now, you both met in the business, so you kind of knew what to expect, I would think. How is this movement for a partner when you have aspirations yourself, things that you want to do? How does that work during this particular time? I won't lie, it's hard. Um, but me going into speech pathology has actually been a blessing because I have the summers off, so I'd be able to go with him to Telluride. It actually works out really well. Um, yeah, the packing every six, nine months is hard, but the summers that we get to spend together and the things that we do together is priceless. Being in Telluride, we would go hiking, we'd go fishing on the weekends when he's off. He's not off very often, but just those memories we were able to create together in a different area where it was cool, it got us out of the hot summers in Phoenix. Just those memories of things to do together are just are priceless. And I'm grateful for actually the experiences that we've had where we've been able to go to different places, see different things, meet different people. Um, it's, it's really been a fun journey. 
like I said, the packing every, <laughs> every year or so is, is hard. Every year we pack up and we go, gosh, what are we going to do with all this stuff? Um, how are we going to fit it into a 800 square foot apartment? Uh, but like I said, the memories of things that we've done, things we've seen and people we've met has, has been priceless. People that we still keep in contact today, um, it's the friends we've made. It's been wonderful. But it is a partnership because you can't do this unless you're both on the same page. No, she's been fantastic that way. It's, you know, like she said, it's always hard. It's not the idyllic thing that you think where somebody says, oh, you get to go to these two great places. We were always moving from a house here to something really small there. You try to fit everything you can in your car as you drive up. And there's a lot of work. You're moving in, you're moving out, you're trying to adjust. Uh, managing, you know, the whole staff in the mountains and trying to run the club and the tournaments and, and deal with all the, with any complaints or any situations. And, you know, it's a mountain golf course. We had a lot of, there were cart accidents, dealing with those while you're on a lesson and, and all the different things that you have to deal with and the weather, you know, you take it for granted here, but every afternoon in the mountains, you get thunderstorms coming in. And I'm pretty sure every time we had a nine and wine, uh, we had a thunderstorm right about the exact same time. It was great. We did early years. We did a lot of hiking together the day off. We'd find beautiful hikes up to these pristine mountain lakes. We'd go for three or four hour hike. Uh, usually we'd have to plan those between the thunderstorms as well. We had a couple of one, one really bad experience with that when we had our daughter. Uh, but yeah, it was, it was a lot of fun. It was a, being in the mountains is a great place. It's a great thing to do in the summertime. And you mentioned you have a daughter. So now you're going back and forth up until last year. Now you've had some real challenges. It's always a very personal experience, things that you both have gone through on this, especially Vanessa. But if you could share with the people that are listening, because I know that there's an awful lot of people that are hearing this podcast, your supporters, your family almost uh, during all of these processes. So could you kind of fill us in on on how that all transpired and, and to some point where you are today. Vanessa? Well, uh, very emotional for me, but I'm grateful to be able to tell my story. It was the last week of March of 2019. Um, it was actually a week before Dale's birthday, something I'll never forget. Um, I just became sick. I'm not really sure at this point in time what was going on. I just felt weird vomiting a little bit, just lethargic, had some really bad neck pain. And I just figured, oh, I've got neck pain. I must have pinched a muscle or a nerve or uh, maybe it was whiplash because I was coughing and vomiting. And so anyways, I just didn't go to work, just not feeling right. So the night of March 31st, Dale's birthday, I woke up in the middle of the night and, hey, honey, something's not right. I can't hold my head up. My head was completely limp. I don't know, it was 1 a.m. or so in the morning. He took me down to Eisenhower, and by the time we got to Eisenhower, I remember seeing double. I was laying there waiting to get checked in, and I said, whoa, everything around me, I'm seeing double. Well, something's not right. Got admitted, remember an MRI. I don't really remember a whole lot after that, but one of the things that does stand out in my mind is Dale being on the phone and countless members of the Bighorn community on the phone with Dale, offering help, navigating this scary 
road ahead for him, helping him. Artie was on the phone behind the curtains, putting him in touch with some of the best doctors, neurologists, getting us the best help that I could possibly have because I feel like the Bighorn community was really behind us. They could see that we needed help. Like I said, I don't remember a lot, but I do remember that. Fast forward a little bit, that was there about four days. And then Eisenhower just couldn't provide the level of care that they could for me at that point. So I was taken to UCSD where I was in ICU for about a month. Again, don't remember a whole lot of that. I remember not being able to move the right side of my body. I remember Dale being by my side, never leaving my side. I remember the nurse was telling him, too, to go home and sleep. And I remember looking at him thinking, oh, boy, he needs to go home and go to sleep because this is going to be a wild ride for him. But again, I remember the Bighorn community, Dale being on the phone with various people here at the club and giving medical advice, putting him in contact with people that would be able to help us. It was incredible. Absolutely incredible. Some of the things I don't remember, but that is something that really stands out in my mind. And it's forever changed our life. I know it's been a difficult time and a challenging time. But as I've told you personally, because we see each other in the gym, you're not a victim, you're a survivor. And your strength, the things that you show to other people are an inspiration to all of us. I remember you being able to thank Mr. Hubbard when he was with us and how emotional that was because your appreciation for what this community has done, specifically Mr. Hubbard and, and others, really has been helpful with it, probably an understatement to both you and Dale. How are you doing today? That's what people want to know. Um, I'm a lot better than I was a year ago. I continue to exercise almost daily. I have to give myself time to rest and recover. I felt like maybe during the lockdown I may have overdone it because I was very tired. But now I'm able to lift my right arm above my head. There was a point in time that I couldn't even hold my head up and now I'm able to hold it up. I'm able to rotate my head, look up and down, able to drive now. There was a point in time that I was tube fed for four or five months or so and I'm able to eat orally. It's not easy still a year later or a year or 14 months out. Still not easy to eat. I still have a lot of weaknesses in my weakness in my neck area. The whole neck was paralyzed, so all the swallowing muscles, the muscles used for voice and respiration were all paralyzed as well. So right now it's a matter of strength training, my arm, shoulder, and neck region. But I'm far better than I was. I'm still fighting every day. It's hard keeping up with a four-year-old at home. It's very challenging, but it also gives me a lot of motivation to keep going to the gym, getting stronger. I'm still getting three days of IVIG every month, which is aminoglobins that fight infection, give me strength. So I do that every month. I do acupuncture. I try to do that about anywhere from one to three times a week. That's helped immensely, relieves a lot of the pain. I have a lot of neck spasticity in the muscles, so they're very tight. So it helps alleviate some of the pain, loosen the muscles, hopefully get blood flowing to the muscles again, helps the nerves regenerate. I'm doing better. I, it's, it's still a long road ahead. My neurologist told me that it's, it's going to be a couple years recovery, but I am back to work too, part-time, and that's been good for me emotionally, mentally, just to get my mind off of the past year and what it's 
done to me physically. It, it gets my mind off of that. It's good for me to be able to think about something else during the day rather than the rehab life. As I understand it, you feel now that you're on the path to recovery, even though it's going to be a slow process. But it sounds, again, your courage, uh, just coming in today, because uh, the questions, there's a whole lot of people here, as you well know, that care so much about the two of you, and specifically about your well-being, because again, this is a partnership that you both have. This isn't, uh, you know, when you're in it, you're in it together. And I thank you again for coming in and sharing this. It's not easy, I know, and it's still an emotional situation. I know you think it goes slow, but the improvement is amazing. It's emotional for sure, but I look back at all the videos. We've taken videos of all my PT sessions, OT sessions, and speech therapy, which is ironic because I'm a speech pathologist and I was getting speech therapy. But I look back at those videos and I just can't believe where I was and where I am now, where our marriage was then and where it is now, how I've relied on him for everything. And I was such an independent person. I've had to rely on him for literally everything, all my activities of daily living. And there were many times that I thought, oh boy, marriages don't survive this stuff. This is pretty profound and pretty scary. And he stuck by my side and held my hand and, and pushed me and encouraged me. And the same goes for the Bighorn community. I'd step foot in the gym and the members would greet me and encourage me and give me high fives. It's just incredible. I don't think I could have gotten as where I am or gotten as far as I am without those people in my life. My parents, everybody has stepped up in profound ways. You know, they say it takes a village. It truly does. And I'm grateful that the Bighorn community is part of my village. Well, and you're part of our community, and again, your strength and your courage, as I've mentioned on a couple of occasions already, it's an inspiration to all of us, what you're going through and how you've handled it. You're right about relationships. It usually does go one way or the other, and in this particular case, it would seem to me that it's even stronger than it ever could be, because to share this experience with somebody that you love and you care about, and a family, because you have a daughter, too, that's dependent on the two of you. So, uh, again, from our community, we're glad you're part of our family. And Dale, this has to be a challenging time for you. It has been. It's, uh, you, you can't prepare for anything like it. In fact, when it first happened, I was talking to my dad on the phone at one point, and I told him, I said, if I wasn't going through it and somebody was describing this to me, I would have a hard time believing it's even real. And it's just one of those things that you, you can't even imagine it. You can't fathom it. You, you know, seeing somebody you love and she was, uh, while she was here at Eisenhower, she wasn't even, she was barely hanging on. And she, I think I counted three different doctors at UCSD that told her she's lucky. She would point up to the wall and I had put a collage of pictures of her and the family and, and our daughter up on the wall. and to kind of help try to motivate her and she'd point to them and she'd shake her fist and they'd know she was a fighter and they could tell and there were at least three doctors that told her it's a good thing she was in such good shape or she wouldn't have made it through and you know she she inspired as many people in that hospital we had more 
nurses and doctors and different staff members just tell us, hey, she's an inspiration to us. We've never seen anybody fight. And I think we were there maybe a week before uh, she she couldn't communicate. We went from, I mean, it was unbelievable as a speech therapist trying to um, use these different forms of communication. But when she got some movement back in her right arm, we had a dry erase board and just I took some washcloths and taped them together for an eraser. And she'd write on the dry erase board in her lap and kind of, you, she couldn't see what she was pointing, she was writing. And a lot of times you couldn't make it out, but there was one um, resident and I that could kind of figure out what she was doing. And when she was pointing on this point board at, num- at letters and um, we kind of figured out how to communicate. And it was just amazing though. She's on a respirator hooked up to all these machines and she said, I want to walk. And they all looked at her and they're like, we've never had anybody walk in the ICU. It just doesn't happen. And sure enough, they got her up. It took five of us, you know, and at this point she still couldn't, you know, it was many months before she could hold her head up on her own. So I'd get behind her and hold her head. And the OT was there, the physical therapist was there, the respiratory tech, the nurse. It took five or six of us. And she, I think the first day walked 15 feet to a chair and sat down for a few minutes and walked 15 feet back. And it was like running a marathon. It was amazing. But everybody she came into contact with, she just inspired all of them, including me. I mean, she's such a fighter. I don't, you know, I wish it would have happened to me and not her. You know, I don't know if I would have made it through what she's gone through. And she's just been amazing. And the people at Bighorn here have been unbelievable. They've helped us in more ways than we can ever count. Mr. Hubbard and I mean, he was just open arms and it's just an amazing experience. And being part of that group is just really shows you how special Bighorn is, not because of the facilities, but because of the people. And that's where, you know, I'm so thankful that we wound up coming here. And that's what our journey led us to Bighorn. And we couldn't have asked for anything more. And and to this day are so thankful for all the help we've received. This story, it's a story we're still going through. We anticipate that it's just going to get better and better and better. What you've been through as you're listening to this podcast, because we've all gone through some challenging times recently. Folks, when you listen to this, be very thankful for what you have. If you see Vanessa at the gym or you see Dale, you know, we're we're in a time when we can't give hugs, but you certainly can say hi, and uh, we're all in this together. We've always said this, in a community like Bighorn, there's a lot of developments, but there's very few communities, and this is definitely a community where everybody cares for each other. Nothing but good things for the future, too. And Dale, I'm going to have, uh, hate to break into another area though but as we finish off i got some questions professionally for you Um, and could you tell me just a little bit about your teaching philosophy sure so i think everybody's different and i don't think it's a one size fits all i think um, you really need to know all the different theories that are out there need to know what works what doesn't work and then you build a swing to fit the individual There's no two individuals that are alike. We all have different stories. Um, We all have different physical attributes that we bring and limitations that we bring. And I think your swing has to fit those attributes. And so um, with my background, which is a really different background, most people aren't into biomechanics like I am, but um, I think it's really important to 
fit the swing to the individual, work within whatever constraints they have. They might even be time constraints. Somebody might say, hey, I just want a quick tip. Just help me out for today. Um, and you give them a quick tip. And then you might meet somebody else and they say, I want to redo my whole swing. I wanna, I'm a 36 handicap and I want to be a three to buy tomorrow. And you kind of usually get a good chuckle out of that one. Then you try to re, reset the realistic expectations. But there are people that want to change and they say, you know, I want to get better. What's it going to take for me to get from point A to point B? And you can have that conversation with them and you can start going down that route. And um, to me, it's important to be able to help everybody, not just one segment of the population, but everybody. Um, and it's important for me to know all the different aspects of the game, whether it be full swing or it's short game. It can be putting, chipping, pitching bunkers, any of those aspects. It can be course management. It can be the mental side of the game. It can be the physical side of the game. I actually can uh, screen people for physical things and then develop programs for stretching or for flexibility or for um, you know workout programs that are golf specific. So it's really more of a holistic approach, um, but within the constraints of the individual. Well, and in full disclosure, since I've been fortunate enough to work with you on occasion, it really is something that's so different. And I think that people that may be intimidated by getting involved in a program or intimidated by, I'm, I'm so bad, nobody can help me, or if I've got this physical ailment that's not allowing me to do this. Uh, I can say from firsthand experience that Dale does tailor everything for the individual, and we can all get better at this game. Whatever that means to you, you can accomplish some goals and, and enjoy the game more. And since we live here with two great golf courses, why not take advantage of the full experience here and get better at the game that's available to you? So I know that that's true, and I really want people, as you enter this new year, uh, you know, we're now we're getting over the pandemic. Now we're getting over all the things that have been challenges for us. Let's get back and enjoy the full range of things that are available to us at this club. And one of his, one of those big things is getting together with Dale. And the first thing is to make the call, to have the conversation with him. Then you'll go from there. It isn't like you have to come with a specific problem. You can. But the thing is, have a conversation. See what you want to accomplish and how Dale can be of help in this. And I really encourage you to find out how it would best fit your needs. And I think, again, we have so many resources at Bighorn. Some of it's the membership, <laughs> some of it's uh, uh, medical attention or whatever it might be, but also to get you to be able to play this sometimes a very frustrating game of golf in a better way because you should be enjoying it. And Dale can help you with that. Uh, I always ask everybody, Dale, a question is, uh, you know, Aside from not wearing a straw hat uh, and, uh, and, and hurting your hand in divots, what advice would you give the 20-year-old Dale today if you were to give that person advice? 
Well, if it was me specifically, I would say just to, to enjoy life. You never know what's coming tomorrow. And I think that's more, I learned that more this last year from what's happened with Vanessa. And it's really been a profound change to our lives that you really have to enjoy the moment. And just like you said with golf, enjoy golf. Uh, I unfortunately don't get a chance to play nearly as much as I'd like to. Um, but that means when I do get to go play, it's that much more special. Um, and I think it, you want to take that, that enjoyment part and put it with everything. So don't be too serious and, you know, plan for the future, but enjoy today for sure. I think that's one of the most important things you can do. Another question is, who's had the greatest influence on your life? Now, that could be multiple people, and I'm sure one of them's sitting right here, but go, I don't want to answer for you. Yeah, of course she has. Um, Vanessa's been a great part of my life for many, many years now. So um, she's been so supportive and loving and caring and, and understanding and um, just so many different things. She's been the best part of my life for many, many years. Um, having a daughter that's now four years old, Mackenzie's definitely changed our lives um, for the better. She's a ball of energy. I wish I had half that energy, um, but you know, she's played a big role in it too. Um, my mom and dad were definitely played a huge role. My mom is such a loving, caring person. Um, she volunteers, she runs a program for people that have lost, recently lost loved ones and are dealing, coping with that. Um, and, and she, that side of thing, the caring side of thing, I really learned from her. Um, my dad, you know, just a great role model as a dad, um, how to be around kids and what to do and, you know, how to be there for McKinsey. He was always there for me with advice, still is, um, advice or anything that goes along that way. He's just been a great influence. Obviously golf, he introduced me to golf, uh, and the competitive side, he was a great competitor, um, so I think, you know, the two of them in a personal life, I think that way career wise, obviously David Ledbetter in the Academy there, um, provided me a lot of opportunities that I wouldn't have had, had I not done that. So, um, very thankful for that. Uh, Janet Alexander, Janet played a great role in helping me understand biomechanics and teaching me. And, um, she has been just fantastic. Um, and continues to be. She, I trust her with Vanessa's recovery. So we go to her for PT. We drive down to San Diego and see her um, for that. So you can see how highly I think of her when I trust her with Vanessa. Um, and then, you know, Mike Adams with biomechanics as well. Mike's a great instructor. Um, he's, you know, re recently in the last few years or so, last five or six years, really kind of, I've really admire what he's done and how he shares with everyone else. And I've always kind of tried to do that myself. I think there's plenty of lessons for everybody in the golf business. And I think too many people try to um, be secretive about their things and not help others. And um, I started at, at the PGA of Southern California Golf Club. I actually started a instructor training program and I did it at Desert Mountain. And I try to help anybody who needs help um, with learning that stuff. And I, I think you know, just being in a community there of helping each other, whether it's um, instructors helping other instructors or it's instructors helping the members or whoever they're teaching. I think that's really important. So um, it's just been a conglomeration of a lot of different people. And uh, I try to learn something from everyone. And I think the more you can do that, the better. And I try to stay. I try to learn something new every year and get certified in something new every year. 
So we've got a lot of technology down at the learning center. We have the TrackMan, which is great. It tells you everything you need to know about what's going on with the club and the ball as it's coming into literally with a full swing. I've got my science and motion putt lab, which can tell us what putter you need, what's going on with 28 different variables in your putting stroke. Um, there's, I've got a little sensor, a blast sensor that I put on clubs. I've got a bunch of different stuff. And the cool part about if you know how to use technology correctly is it actually makes it more simple. So it simplifies things and you can really kind of boil it down to the nuts and bolts of here's this one thing that you want to work on. That's all. And then it allows the, the student or the golfer to actually see what I see so it can quantify it. So if I say, hey, Marty, we need to change this and I tell you what to do and it doesn't change it, then I might have told you the wrong thing or maybe you're not doing it. And we can kind of go from there and figure out which one of those it is. But um, so I think it's been just a, a whole mix of trying to learn from everybody. Well, and that leads into another question that I have, and it usually is about, you know, what does the future hold as far as uh, for you? And, and as a prelude to that, so often do I see teachers of any kind get kind of stuck. They kind of feel, okay, I know everything about it, and here's the process, and, and there's golf teachers I know that have made a career out of just staying in one place. You obviously want to continue, it's your nature, to want to continue to improve. What does the future look like for you? Well, as far as just learning, I think you, you hit the nail on the head. The day you stop learning should be the day you're not here anymore. Um, and I think you continue to learn. I, I've always been curious uh, just by nature. It's just the way I am. And I, I want to learn. I want to learn about all sorts of things. But golf specifically is why does this do this? Why does that do that? Why does this person swing the way they do? Um, and how do you fix this one, this way of swinging versus that way? And what's the best way to do it? And so for me, I want to be able to help everybody. I know that might not be the most realistic thing. Um, but I don't see why you can't. And, you know, the more tools I can put in my toolbox, uh, the more thing, the more people I can help. And I think that's what's really um, struck me is about Bighorn is like I've always wanted to help people. And I think that's part of the reason I got into the golf instruction business. I enjoy helping people and I really like it. Somebody comes back to me and they say, oh, my gosh, I did this for the first time or, um, oh, I had a hole in one or I. I shot my best score ever. I broke this number or I broke that number or I'm hitting this many fairways now. It's helped so much or I'm hitting it further, so much further. Um, those stories really touch me and it gives me a lot of satisfaction knowing that I'm helping people. I'm enriching their lives, so to speak, um, I, even though it's just golf. But a lot of people, golf affects them a great deal. So just being able to help people is is such a pleasure for me and that's what kind of motivates me and drives me and i want to be able to continue to do that and i know golf is ever evolving uh, as far as technology and things that go along with the different parts of the game so i try to learn as much as i can and even with the recent pandemic um, i was going online and doing webinars online and attending different things trying to learn from as many people as i could while we were shut down for that little bit so um, it's one of those things that the more you can learn, the better. And I just try to keep learning every day. And there's a lot of options for people, Dale. Uh, I know I saw you this year doing a lot of on-course training. 
how to manage your game, all those sorts of things. So it's not just one thing. You got group lessons, you have individual lessons, you have putting lessons, you have... So there's a lot of options for people once that they get in touch with you and, and, and figure out what it is that they want, what best suits their personality and their golf game. Sure, we offer a lot of different options here. They can do any, just about anything they can dream of, we can do. So obviously full swing is really important, um, but it's only one little part of the game. You know, if you've got a great swing, but you can't figure out how to manage any kind of uneven lie, a side hill, uphill, downhill, uh, whatever it is, then you're probably not going to be as successful as you'd like. Um, so, yeah, doing a lot of golf course on course stuff was great. Um, this spring, that, that part was fantastic. I love going on the golf course because there's so many different things you can cover. You can cover course management. You can cover the mental side. You can cover strategy. You can cover um, how to handle un- different lives, percentage plays from different areas. Um, there's just so many things. And on a driving range, it's a pretty flat surface. And you can hit the same club over and over and over again. And just about anybody can get in a rhythm doing that. But when you hit a driver off the first tee and then you hit an iron or a fairway wood or a hybrid for your second shot and it's four minutes apart or here at Bighorn, two and a half minutes apart, um, it can it changes things. Right. You don't get into that rhythm. So teaching people how to play is different than just hitting balls on the range. So um, learning how to practice is important. Learning how to compete against other people is really important. Um, there's just so many different aspects of it. And yes, we do individual lessons. We do group lessons. Uh, we do on course stuff. We do on the range stuff. We do short game. Um, you name it, we can do it all. We want to make it so you don't have to go anywhere else. You've got the best instruction in the world and you've got the best facilities and you don't have to step foot off property. And the best instructor. So just it may be obvious to some but just to make sure that everybody knows, because I said this is a resource that you need to take advantage of. How does one do that? Contact the pro shop. What's the best way for them to start setting up lessons for this next season? Sure. During the season, the best thing to do is probably call the golf shop. Um, I'm usually teaching most of the day, every day. Um, So a lot of times, by the time I can get back to somebody, uh, if they send me a text or even an email, um, it might take a few hours between my breaks, I get a break in the middle of the day and then again at the end of the day. Um, but by the time I can get back to somebody, the time slots I might have told them I had open are no longer open because other people have called the shop. So the easiest thing to do is call the golf shop. The staff in the golf shop's great. They're able to help people and direct them um, into the right things. And if they've got questions, they can always let them know and I can call them back anytime. And I'm happy to do that and answer any questions I can. And, you know, the most important thing is that people feel comfortable with, with all the different programs that we offer. Um, and we even customize programs for, for people. So um, anything we can do to help somebody out, is what, that's why we're here. I want to thank Dale for joining us today and sharing his story. And also for having his wife, Vanessa, join us to share their story of courage, personal challenge, that is an inspiration to all of us. Dale's background in golf instruction is a resource that we are lucky to have in our community. So if you want to improve your golf experience, give Dale a call. Well, thank you, Marty. Thank you. And thanks to Leeds & Son Fine Jewelers and AT&T for their support. 
which has allowed us to continue to bring you these podcasts. We look forward to Season 3 of the Bighorn Podcast with more interesting people and their extraordinary stories starting in October of this year. Thanks for listening.